the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Tolerance. It's a term bantied about with great abandon these days, especially by those on the left. Liberals who wish for freedom of expression and understanding for all peoples of all persuasions, hawking all agendas, eh, with the sole caveat that tolerance is tossed unceremoniously out the window when it comes to those deemed by the so-called tolerant left to be Intolerant, And by intolerant, they mean pretty much anyone who doesn't tout their party line or embrace their body politic. A new book out that gives us the inside story to this issue of an attempt by the liberal left to silence everyone else. The book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. Its author, well-known political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, let's talk a bit about this attack on free speech coming from kind of an unusual end of the political spectrum. I mean, aren't these the same people, the students of yesterday and the teachers of today that began the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus in the 1960s? Yes, exactly. And I I call the people in the book the liberal left to distinguish them from what I consider just the average Democrat or even your average principled liberal who still really holds firm to those ideas of tolerance and diversity and free speech that you were just referring to. Uh, and, And that's what makes, I think, what they're doing that much more troubling is because on the one hand, they still claim to value these things, while at the same time, they are using all sorts of different tactics to silence the debates, to say certain things, certain debates are over, that we aren't allowed to talk about certain things anymore, and if you do talk about them, you will be labeled with some toxic moniker that's, you know, going to make you radioactive, basically, to the rest of society. And, and how do they live with themselves in the sense, and, and, and you've had a chance to deal with both ends of the political spectrum, both as a reporter and news analyst. There's this sense, I think, that some of them are out there promoting the same kind of stereotypes that they themselves purport to hate. Right. Well, I think that, that they are able to do it because they really do believe that what they're doing is a righteous act. They, they believe that they have the capital T truth, that they know what is right and that there really is nothing to debate and so that they don't they they don't feel that there is a need to for example treat somebody who opposes same-sex marriage as anything other than a homophobe or a bigot and and so you know even though i i do support same-sex marriage i i recognize that there are people who don't that are people of goodwill and that you know and then that the best way to engage people is to um persuasion, uh, you know, rather than coercion, rather than trying to silence them. And 
neoliberal left doesn't see it that way. They really do believe that the righteous act is to just really sort of isolate that person from society by saying, no, you know, you're, you're a homophobe and, uh, you know, we don't, we don't even need to talk to you about it. Yeah, the irony is if they believe so strongly in their position, you would think that the notion of civility and honesty and public discourse in the end would allow the, the quote-unquote truth to win out, but yet they don't apparently see it that way. And I have to wonder if there's almost a sense of, of compartmentalizing going on here. You, you resided inside of the Clinton administration as a Clinton appointee from 92 to 98. From that kind of uh, viewpoint, from the kind of the inside looking out, is there a lot of compartmentalization that goes on? I don't I, I don't think that they really feel a need to compartmentalize because, like I said, they really do believe that they believe so strongly in what they're doing that they, they feel like that they're on the right so-called right side of history or the, you know, the right side of the issue. And, and so that they, you know, there's, I, there's this example, this just happened last month of uh, uh, Christina Hoffsummer, who's She's an AEI scholar, and she came, She went to Georgetown and Oberlin universities in the same month to speak on what she calls equity feminism. It's her version of feminism, which is different from liberal feminism. And, you know, she was treated almost like a terrorist coming to campus. It was, you know, people, you know she had to have security, and they had people there holding signs that they're trigger warnings, so they were being triggered, you know, that this is going to cause them some sort of emotional distress and danger, and there were signs for a safe room where you could go and, and be safe while she's you know, on campus talking to the campus Republicans about her, her vision of feminism and just treating, treating differing ideas as actually dangerous. You know, that, that's, I think that that is what is, it takes it away from just your basic intolerance of, uh, I can't hear this, that it's actually posing a danger and need, and then they try to get the speeches canceled, and if they can't get the speeches canceled, then they try. To, they're very disruptive, um, or they try to delegitimize the speaker by making them seem like they're saying these horrific things when all they're doing is expressing a different opinion. And the irony is that seems to be kind of the, out of the arsenal of, uh, of tools that they utilize seems to be some of the more popular approaches, stigmatization, uh, delegitimizing, as you're saying, sometimes even going as far as, as dehumanizing. Uh, many of your colleagues, some of which um, as, as commentators that appear on other networks, I won't mention MSNBC, uh, make much game of this sport of dehumanizing those that have differing opinions. Yeah, I mean, dehumanizing is a tactic you see in particular towards uh, conservative women or uh, non-white conservatives. So it's basically trying to turn them into, you know, non non beings. You don't even need to take them seriously. And with with conservative women, they will do it through. You know, she's not really a woman. They don't speak for women. The only women who speak for women are pro-choice Democrats. Um, that they are, you know, Bush in a skirt. Uh, they're all sort of, you know, female impersonators. These are some of the, the words that have been used to describe uh, conservative women. Or they objectify them, which is another form of dehumanization, which actually what is so noxious about this is that it's feminists who have came up with this theory that dehumanize, objectifying women is dehumanizing, and it's actually very effective. It's a very effective way to, to make people not take a woman seriously. So if you focus obsessively on her body or her looks or what she's wearing, as they did with, for example, Sarah Palin, and turn her into a sex object, then voters start to, you know, not see this person any longer as even a 
potentially serious person. They just see them as a sex object. And so these are the kind of tactics that they use, even though they say they stand for women. But what I don't understand is, and maybe you can shed some light on this, why do mainstream liberals give give sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card to some of these commentators and, and so-called news reporters who, who use this kind of language. For example, you mentioned about uh, references to people like uh, either Sarah Palin or uh, Michelle Bachman as, as bimbos. I think at one time didn't Ed Schultz even use that yeah. demeaning term uh, directed toward you? And, and, and when it's done, the liberal left seems to look the other way. But can you imagine anyone on Fox News making a reference to, say, Hillary Clinton as the um, Democrat candidate bimbo and getting away with it? No, of course not. I mean, there's a double standard. And they have started to be shamed by it. And so they have some groups have started to recognize that they have to condemn uh, condemn this when it's happening to conservative women. Though they always kind of do it in this grudging way, you know, like, oh, yeah, I guess we have to you know, we have to stand up for this, but, you know, they're not, but, but for a long time they didn't. And a lot of them were participants in it. That's the thing that a lot of the people who were making the misogynist attacks against Sarah Palin were self-described feminists. So, it, you know, it, it, it's, and so it's, it's, sometimes it's them and then other times it's sitting by, you know, while Keith Olbermann, while he was, you know, sitting atop his perch at MSNBC is doing it, whether it's Chris Matthews that is doing it. Uh, they, you know, they just sit there and they, they don't, they, they just either ignore it or they, um, you know, maybe will find something to complain about now and then. But it doesn't cause the full-scale hysteria that you see, like what you saw, what happened when, when Rush Limbaugh had, you know, had uh, called Sandra Fluck, you know, a slut, which he, he apologized. Well, actually, I don't know if he apologized, but he was treated as if he had to, uh, you know, lose his show over that, right? You know, and this is one incident versus continuous incidents of liberal men that are completely ignored. What's ironic about this is just how insidious and widespread all this is. As you delineate inside the pages of the silencing, we, we, we find this approach to, um, again, just the, 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 the closing down of civil dialogue, the stigmatization, dehumanization of the opposition, so to speak, that occurs not only on college campuses, as we referred to a moment ago. It's taking place uh, certainly within uh, politics, within the, the, the Democrat Party. We see it taking place in, in the news arena. It's almost as if there's, there's no free um, antagonizing zone where actual discourse and exchange of, of ideas can take place anymore without fearful of, of suddenly coming under attack or having even your very legitimacy being questioned. Right. I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, and I just did want to clarify that Rush, I just checked that Rush Limbaugh did apologize to her, which is like one extra step that we don't often see by the, uh, the men uh, you know, on the left who just are doing this with in, impunity and are never, are never criticized. So, you know, I do think that um, the delegitimizing that's going on, which I get into in the, in the book so much, is just is such an effective tactic to... Uh, to avoid debate, uh, to, to, to not have to, you know, somebody says something and you don't have to engage them on what they actually said. Uh, instead, you can just pick out something about them that other people are not going to like. Other people do not want to listen to somebody who, they, who they've been convinced is a racist. They do not want to listen to somebody who they've convinced, have been convinced of, is, a, is an Islamophobe or, you know, or a rape denier, as they call the people who question the campus rape 
statistics, and it's just kind of, they're neither conversation enders, not conversation starters. It's not encouraging robust debate, uh, and, and which is really how we get knowledge in society. Uh, instead, it's encouraging really us just accepting what a certain group of people have decided is the truth, and we're not supposed to question it. Kirsten Powers, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline. We're talking about her new book called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The new book, by the way, just released by Regnery Press, available at Bay Area bookstores as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Kirsten Powers as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Our special guest today, well, you certainly know her as a political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, and now a new book called The Silencing. We're visiting today with Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, you relay an example of how insidious all of this is taking place on college campuses in terms of almost uh, sort of grooming students into this sense of um, of intolerance uh, by talking about um, Lafayette College and, and their so-called bias response team. Uh, share this example with listeners from the book, if you would, and then give us a sense of just how widespread is this mentality across campuses in America today? Well, th- these kinds of things are starting to crop up, and I expect them to probably spread, which is the idea that, you know, if you, something on campus happens that you feel was somehow offensive, you know, some sort of bias, whether it's a racial bias or, you know, gender bias or something, that you can report people for it, uh, and that it's treated as if it's uh, almost like a bodily harm that has occurred to you. And this is something that comes up throughout the, the book in, in, in various stories, which was particularly alarming to me, which was that, you know, taking offense or even just disagreement or having to see something or hear something that you don't like is really often described as a violent event. That, 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 that's the, the language that's used. I, I talk about the professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who physically attacked a pro-life student uh, who was part of a peaceful demonstration and told the police officer when she was arrested that she was, quote-unquote, triggered, which is a word that comes up throughout the book, uh, that, that she was triggered by having to encounter this peaceful demonstration. That she shouldn't have to see something like this, that it's you know, this is supposed to be her safe space. This is a professor, um, you know, who doesn't want to have to encounter a view that she doesn't like and that and treats it just the expression of the view as an attack. And so this is the mentality that we have that is spreading, which is which is that, you know, in that case, that's an outlier. Usually it doesn't involve somebody physically attacking somebody. The response, but there, there are other ways the person is then silenced because, you know, they say, well, I just, I, I can't, you know, I just, it, it was, I can't. I can't see that. I can't hear that. I can't. You know, the irony is, is that you, when you breakdown. when you put this in context, for those of us that are old enough to remember, a, a lot of the new liberalism today, whether it be on college campuses or in the mainstream media, sounds like a lot of the old McCarthyism of the 1950s. Yes. Yeah. Very similar. And it's there's yeah. There's an aspect of who you talk to also uh, is is indicative of. Of who you are versus what you say or what you think, and I experienced this actually when my book came out. When uh, I gave excerpts of the book to various 
publications, including the Daily Beast, which I write for and is considered a, a, you know left of center, but also to a publication at the Heritage Foundation, which is conservative. And because of that, I had all these liberal lefties coming after me saying that I, you know, because I had allowed the Heritage Foundation to run an excerpt that I, you know, that that just proved that I was a right-wing hack and my book was <laughs> somehow backed by the Heritage Foundation. Some, suddenly you know, you're a shill, shill for the left, or for right. the right, rather. <laughs> yeah, but, but never mind that, like, I ran excerpts in the Daily Beast. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it's just, they, they just look for some kind of relationship that they can use to prove that you're a secret, you know, closet conservative. I have a bunch of examples in the book of how they really use this against journalists to scare journalists to, into not pursuing stories because they will be accused of being closet conservatives because they are investigating the Obama administration or they're investigating Republicans. But if they investigate, uh, you know, the the right the, the right people, then uh, then they're gonna if they investigate Republicans, they're gonna be fine. But if they investigate Democrats, they're not. So you'll have people like Cheryl Atkinson, who award-winning investigations of both parties. But all you'll hear about from the liberal left is how she investigated the Obama administration, and therefore she's this, she's literally this partisan, uh, you know, conservative hack. You know, the irony is this agenda, though, just bubbles so 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 uh, close to the surface, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, for example, uh, Chris Hayes recently did what he called a Hillary Clinton study guide for millennials, where he touted all the wonderful things that she apparently had done before most of them, quite frankly, had ever even been born. And yet, can you imagine if, say, Fox News attempted to do a, a new millennials guide to Ben Carson, what, what, what kind of response you would see from the left? Right. Well, that's total double standard. I mean, you can't. There, you know, there's this idea that uh, you know they spent all this time. I have a whole chapter on it, trying to delegitimize Fox News. Uh, the White House did, saying you know they're not a real news organization, and uh, and and telling other news organizations that they shouldn't treat them as real news organizations. And meanwhile, MSNBC is doing this times a million. You know, and and I'm not. I actually, I think MSNBC is free to do that. I don't. And if and if, the, and if George Bush had ever come out and said they weren't legitimate, I would have been the first person to defend them. You know, I don't. I think that they they're they're, they're free to you know have have whatever kind of program they want to have. And uh, and I and I don't think that that means that you know if Chris Hayes does something on one show that uh, you know a reporter or a host of another show is somehow held accountable for that, right? I mean, like the same way like they try to merge everything at Fox together. It's like, well, because there's Sean Hannity, then that means that Brett Baer can't be trusted. Well, those two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, they're completely different shows. And um, and one is an expressly an opinion show. And so, yeah, there's, just not, there's an absolute double standard where you had Obama administration officials leaving and going to work for MSNBC after the same people who said that Fox was not a legitimate news organization. Help us understand something here. Um, how much of this, in your opinion, is, is just based on that sense of unfamiliarity breeding contempt? In other words, that it's easy to either dislike or hate what you don't know or don't understand. So many people, particularly for the, the, the political world inside the beltway, don't have an opportunity to really get to know, quote-unquote, the enemy or the other side. And so as a result, because of that, that sense of ignorance, we'll call it, uh, that, that, that they sort of have this 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 deepening abiding sense of acrimony shown toward those who don't share the same opinion yeah yeah i think that there's i, I there's definitely an element of that it's very hard to sustain these the, the these ideas for example that 
every single person who opposes same-sex marriage is a homophobe if you actually have friends or people that you're close to who have sincere religious beliefs that lead them to oppose same-sex marriage, and, and you can see, you know, that they, they aren't homophobes. I'm not saying that the person's never a homophobe, but I'm just saying that that's, you know, that, that, at least in my experience, the people that I know, that that's not what's driving them. What's driving them is a religious belief. So I do think there's that. Um, but I don't, the, the problem with the liberal left is they really aren't interested in, <laughs> in knowing people who are different than them, and they, because they are so convinced that they are right, that they, it just does not seem to have occurred to them that uh, that they could be wrong. But, you know, I used to be pretty close-minded, and I was definitely, you know, I'd worked in the Clinton administration, Democratic politics, very liberal family, and uh, I had a lot of these, these ideas as well that I had it all figured out. And basically working at Fox News and, and then later in life conversion to Christianity where I started being around, obviously, a lot of Christians and more conservatives, I, you know, it did slowly break down my my prejudices. Frankly, I mean, they were prejudices uh, where I, could, you know, I didn't necessarily change my political views, but I was able to see, oh, you know, there is a debate to be had here. Uh, there are things to talk about, and, and th- these are legitimate views. They're just different than mine. So at the end of the day, while it's it's often kind of surprising to see how closed-minded so many so-called open-minded liberals really are, there is hope, and 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 I think sometimes the opportunity to the degree to which it's possible. And I'm just thinking about people that are engaged in the day-to-day business of going about uh, their affairs to engage with people in mm-hmm. a loving, legitimate, intellectual fashion concerning the issues of the day, not with heated exchange and raised voices, but just just an, an open-minded exchange of ideas can sometimes eventually bring people around to another point of view. I think so, yeah. It, it's often slow, so I think people get discouraged. Uh, you know, I think it's not, it's not like you're going to meet somebody one time and that's going to happen, but I do think over time, and I've had a lot of friends tell me that, it's, you know, knowing me also has changed their views on some things, or even, you know, they have their, their ideas about what a liberal is like or what a liberal thinks, and, and you know, so I think, you know, it's been beneficial in both directions. Well, the book certainly is very engaging in helping us to not only better understand what's taking place here, the dynamic between the two sides, so to speak, but also, I think, uh, uh, gives us a sense of hope that we can engage in some dialogue and eventually see some change. Kristen Powers, the book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The book, published by Regnery Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And, of course, Regnery Press, a part of the company that owns this fine radio station. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. America's at war right now. We we forget this. Uh, we don't, for many of us, we, we, we're not aware of it. It's kind of silently going on in the background. We don't feel the pain of it because we either don't know anybody who's serving or, you know, we, we don't do things like you know, aluminum and tire drives and there, there isn't meat and sugar rationing. So we're not really aware of the sacrifice that's involved in military duty. But for those military families in America, hundreds of thousands of them, they know what it's like each and every single day. 
And we thought we'd spend some time just kind of educating all of us on, on what they go through and the amazing sacrifice, not just on the battlefield, but even back at home, uh, on the home front, uh, with a mother or a father or both sometimes and kids that, that, are, that are at home, kind of keeping the, the, the home fires burning, so to speak, while mom or dad are overseas uh, in, in service to our country. Joining me now is Lieutenant Colonel Tony Monetti. Um, he, with his wife Peggy, Penny, rather, are uh, authors of a new book called Called to Serve, Encouragement, Support, and Inspiration for Military Families. And uh, Lieutenant Bonetti and Penny, great to have both of you with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Great to be on board. We were on. we were trying to debate uh, ahead of the conversation today, uh, Tony. Um, short for your position, is it lieutenant? Is it colonel? Or 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 would military decorum insist to be lieutenant uh, colonel? Just call me Tony, but I'm a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. In the Air Force, okay. But typically, there's no way to really truncate that, is there? No, not really. Lieutenant colonel. Lieutenant colonel. We'll go with Tony. I like that. Tony's it's easier. Fine, man. <laughs> I'm Talk- originally from Brooklyn, New York, so, you know, um, Tony makes me feel like I'm back home. There you go. All right. Well, <laughs> well, Tony, talk to us a bit, first, if you would, about the reality check here that a lot of, I think, families who are beginning the experience of military duty, they might either be newly married or newly into the military, and even for the rest of us out there that really don't understand what your families go through. Yeah, for those of you that are just joining uh, the military and for those of you who have no clue on what it's like to be in the military, um, I'm glad to talk to you a little bit about Call to Serve and, and what it's like. Uh, I've had the privilege to serve in America for almost 24 years now as an officer in the United States Air Force, and uh, I can just tell you that it's a privilege and an honor to be part of the military. Um, but it's also really exciting and uh lo- you know, lots of new changes every day uh, as far as, you know, what you may or may not be doing. I mean, I've, I've been called to serve and, and gone overseas on moment's notice, and next thing I know I'm in a foreign country, and, and, and it's exciting. But there's also a lot of transitions and challenges that we have to uh, uh, take part of, especially for our families, and that's and I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, you know, for example, my oldest son, Nico, who right now just graduated from Chapman from in L.A., uh, he he went to three different high schools, you know, in, in three years. And for those of us that have been to high school, you know how tough it is to move once and to let alone three times. So, yeah, you know, it, it take, gets them getting used to lots of moves, lots of transitions. But overall, uh, we have a heart for service to America, and, and we just find it it's a privilege and an honor to serve her. It was interesting because some of us on the outside that that are not involved in active military duty or perhaps have never been a part of a military family uh, – see the excitement, the glamour, you know, the, the, you're traveling and you're doing all of this. And, and you know, and a lot of it, no doubt, is born out of the television ads that we see, you know, the recruitment ads and so forth, but not really realizing that there's a backside story to this that is difficult, that is painful at times, that certainly is, is challenging. I guess when you get on the backside of it, uh, a lot of those those initially painful and frustrating moments turn into 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 joyful ones on the backside. I, I, Penny, yeah. I had to laugh in in reading your story. Uh, you got uh, to talking about um, when you guys were called to uh, uh, Vicenza in in northeast Italy, and your <laughs> your initial experiences there. 
Um, which I don't know if you're. Let ba- me go home to yeah. America. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Obviously, Tony's background is Italian. Is your are you of Italian descent as well? No, I'm not. And I, I thought I knew Italian until I put my feet on foreign soil in Italy and realized how fast they talk. So <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, it it was such an eye-opening experience going to another country, and I. I wish everybody in the in America has the experience of living in another country at least for a, a month to to realize um, how great it is in America. But when when we went there, uh, our initial, you know, when we first landed there, the um, I, I tell the story about being in uh, at a fountain and uh, hearing the the kerplunks and the of coins going into a fountain. And as I toss my coins and I make sure they missed because the legend of the Trevi Fountain is that when you throw the coin into the fountain, you'll return to you'll Rome. You'll return. That's right, and, yeah. And at that point, there was nothing I wanted more than to be back home in America. And uh, But as I, as I experienced Italy and I learned the culture, um, and this was after a, a, a very uh, <laughs> interesting first, first month because my husband was hospitalized. And had to undergo surgery, and so during that time, I had I was on my own with the kids to find an apartment, not speaking the language, and going through a lot of the, um, you know, trying to get through Italy and the driving and all of the, you know, things that you have to get through in a new country. And we weren't really affiliated with the base; we were an hour and twenty minutes away from a base. So, so you really didn't have the support necessarily there of, of the fellow, you know, uh, military personnel. You're in a strange country. Um, and, and, and I have to admit, we Italians can be sometimes a little bit nerve-wracking. Uh, the, the stories you share of your, your first meeting with your, with your downstairs neighbor were particularly encouraging. Well, you know, after being cooped up in a hotel for a month with three kids and a dog, and, um, and Tony was still on bed rest, we moved over to finally finding a, an apartment with a kitchen because you can't find one in Italy that has a kitchen because everybody takes them when they move. And we finally found one with a kitchen, and as we were moving in and the kids were getting ready to go to the pool because I, they, I bribed them with a, going to the pool after we unpacked, and uh, I heard a knock on the door, and as I went to the door, a beautiful middle-aged woman came to the door, and uh, I thought, God, this is wonderful. We've got Italian hospitality right off the bat. They're going to welcome me. <laughs> and she said, in broken English, she said, she said, how long do you plan on being here? And I said, well, maybe two years. And she said, well, I cannot have all of this noise on my head for two years. I, I want you to stop. And, and, she was, and she said something in Italian that I'm sure was not very nice, and she stormed out the door. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is, this is my first experience with our neighbors. So we were a little bit, I was a little bit frazzled, and so I took the kids to the pool. And as I went to the pool, I sat down on a chair and, and it found one that wasn't populated. It was, a, you know, there was very crowded. And I sat down and the whole chair busted. And, and I saw the Tatiana was the lady downstairs. I saw her smirking with another woman. And I could tell even in another language, they were probably talking about me. And uh, then a, a, an Adonis-looking man came over to my chair and he said in broken English, these chairs belong to people here you're going to need, you know, this is not, you're going to have to take care of the expense for this chair. And, and so I decided, okay, it's time for me to go back to the apartment. And as I went back, I realized because I was frazzled, I locked the, the keys into the 
house. And uh, so I called my husband. He called the landlady and explained to him in Ita- her in Italian that, you know, what had happened. And so uh, she said she would come right over in three hours. And <laughs> <laughs> so you're lucky yeah, it was that you're lucky it was that quickly. <laughs> you're right. Usually it's Domani. We learned that Domani, Domani. in Italian. <laughs> but uh, anyway, she came over three hours and twenty minutes later to find us sunburned and thirsty. And and uh, I I explained to her in in English, and even though she didn't understand a word, she under she empathized with me and gave me a big hug. And from then on, I learned that um, that the Italian culture, uh, I, we learn to embrace it. And instead of being afraid of another country, we learn to, um, to, to really embrace their, their values and their culture and ended up having a, just a beautiful experience where at the end of my story, I'm back at Trevi Fountains and I'm throwing loads of coins in because I didn't want to leave. This I considered home. So... It's all it's all in the, the what you make of it. And, and along the way, I'm sure, you, if, if not learning literally how to speak the language, you know, if you know how to use your hands in the right places <laughs> at the right time, you know, that, that that's the that's best way correct. to communicate. My, my father has a great joke. He says, you know how to make an Italian shut up? Tie his hands behind his back. <laughs> that's that's, I, how, that's I, how I silence my husband. You're I, right. I, I can say that because I'm Italian. We're going to take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. With us tonight, Lieutenant Colonel Tony Monetti, along with his wife, Penny. The book is called Called to Serve, Encouragement, Support, and Inspiration for Military Families. And, and the new book, by the way, published by Discovery House. You can find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. We'll come back with some more insights as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And with Lieutenant Colonel Tony Manetti from the United States Air Force, along with his wife Penny, we're talking about a new book called Called to Serve, Encouragement, Support, and Inspiration for Military Families. You know, as much as we, I got such a big kick out of your, your experiences there, um, Penny, in Vicenza, the notion that for a lot of families, this is a sad story, this is a tough thing. There are some wives out there that say, you know, when... When I met my spouse, he wasn't in the military, or if he was, I don't know that I fully understood this, and he's the one who enlisted, not me, and all of a sudden we're now kind of all in this thing together. It, it really is a team effort. You can't do it uh, one person. And that's one thing that I, I've realized with most spouses is that they understand that in, they're serving their country also by supporting their spouse on the home front while they're away on the battlefront. See, if there's any message we could communicate to those eavesdropping on our conversation tonight that think of the one who was in service to God and country in the military as singularly the individual who, you know, carries the the epilepsy or the, the, the you know, the, the military regalia or, or what have you. It's not just them. Literally, the families are in service as well, aren't they? Yeah, you, you really are. And the one thing that I would leave with spouses that's so important while their warriors are serving abroad is not to isolate themselves, to stay connected with family members, with their churches, with their uh, community and the military. Because once you become isolated, and, and the Bible verse comes to mind of 1 Peter 5, 8, be self-controlled and alert, your enemy prowls around like the roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
the lion, when he hunts, he separates the the prey from the pack. And that's what the devil does with with any of us in our lives, that when he wants to attack is he separates us from those who give us the most strength. And sticking with, uh, you know, with your, your accountability partners, with um, good friends, that helps. And that's the same goes with the warriors that are serving overseas, that they surround themselves with a good, strong community of friends and uh, positive influences and stay in the word. That is that is what the you know the best thing to do. Tony, does that also give you a sense of peace of mind as well? Because let's face it, you're you're out there. You're right now. You're flying the the B two stealth bomber. You're going on missions and and sorties and so forth. Uh, does it give you a greater sense of of peace as you're about this very stressful, critically important job to know that things are being taken home, care of at home? Well, without question, every every warrior that that deploys overseas is more at peace and able to focus on the mission when they know that uh, their families are being taken care of. And I can I can tell you that our government and our Department of Defense does a great job in uh, supporting our families, giving them good medical treatment, you know, giving them good security and housing. I mean, there's no other greater country than, than America on this planet. And and it's nice to know that that our our uh, government, our, our, our military is taking care of our families. But more importantly, like Penny was alluding to, uh, it, it starts with the home as far as you as a, as a warrior explaining to your wife and children and being honest with them that there's, there's a possibility you may deploy at any moment. And so, it's, you know, have your will done, power of attorney, have the, the lines of communication open so that they know that they can rely on talking to you if and when possible. But more importantly, that to know that they're they're a strong family unit, so that when you leave, they're going to be taken care of because they're strong. Absolutely. Any any words of advice that you can share? Uh, and let me start, Tony, first with you. Um, for those listening right now that are not in the military, um, you know, you're you're doing your duty. I think we as Americans have a duty to you uh, to help support you. What 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 should we who are are, are in the civilian end of this? Uh, how can we better support you guys, and, and most importantly, your families, too? I think uh, that's a great question, uh, Craig. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind for me is that, you know, when we're in uniform and people see us either at the airport or, or even just uh, in town, that they say, thanks for serving. I know that sounds cliche-ish, but just the, uh, knowing that you care and you're appreciated is great. And I, I can also say that if there's business people out there, um, I know times are tough. Uh, but if you offer some sort of military appreciation, uh, whatever that may be, it, it just, it's just special. My son just enlisted in the Army uh, a few weeks ago, decided to go in. And Wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the Army? You're in the Air Force. Hang I on know, a minute here. What happened, Tony? I don't even let me go in. What happened? He's <laughs> <laughs> always wanted to be a G.I. Joe, you know? It's okay. But, both, uh, both of my grandfathers were in the Navy. What does my father really? do? He joins the Marines. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we got a true joint force now. But, when my, but my, what I was getting at was Antonio uh, joined the military. They gave him an ID card. He starts training here soon. And, um, and he went to a store, and they, 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 they gave him a military discount, like 10% off. And he goes, wow, Dad, that's really cool that they appreciate me. I go, yeah, see that, son? I go, it's just their way of saying thanks. So I would say to the listeners out there um, that, that there's, that's one of the things you can do. Uh, another thing that's, that, that you can do, if you go to calltoserveministry.com, we literally have pages of information. Of, and Penny and I have researched of almost, I wouldn't say almost about 100 different organizations that 
are supporting the military. And so if you're interested in getting involved in connecting with these with these organizations so that you can connect with warriors overseas, that's another great thing you can do. Of course, there's, a, there's letters of encouragement you can write. When I was overseas, I would get letters from kids saying, thanks for serving America. I mean, that, that meant so much to me. I still have those letters of boxes down the basement and that, because it just meant a lot to me, you know. Yeah, and, and and supporting organizations like the USO and so forth. Absolutely, yes, sir. No doubt about it. And, and Penny, from your perspective, uh, same question. Well, I, I would definitely say for those families that are on the home front, and maybe there's someone you go to church with or you know of, um, reaching out to them, just uh, offering them to babysit once in a while. They don't realize that you know you don't really get a break uh, often because you're away from family in most cases. And your husband is usually the break that you, or your, or your wife, if it's a, vice versa, is the break that you get when um, to to get out. So just offering to babysit or having someone come over and mow a yard, or maybe you know a child that is their parent is deployed and going to their baseball game and taking them out for ice cream afterwards because their parents not there. It just shows them so much that that just that they're cared about, and it gives that warrior on the on the battlefront just. A, a sense of peace knowing that his family is being taken care of. Absolutely. Well, I love what you guys are doing. Again, we want to urge folks, uh, you can get educated by getting a copy of this new book, Called to Serve, Encouragement, Support, and Inspiration for Military Families. Get more details, too, about this ministry, how you can get involved in making a difference and helping to support those in service to our nation through calledtoserveministry.com. That's called to serve ministry. Dot com And our appreciation out to uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Tony Manetti and his wife, Penny. Uh, uh, Tony, one thought. When, when, you, when you talk to Antonio next, you just got to say, you know, kid, you join the Army. Why walk when you can fly? <laughs> I love it. I promise you, I'll ask. I'll, I'll you got to say that. You know, you. Army's okay, but why walk when you can fly? Yeah, I, I don't understand it for the life of me. But, you know, uh, I, I'm happy that he chose to... To defend America and be part of our military service. Well, we, we, we are we are privileged to have great men like you serving our nation. Thank you so much for yes, the duty sir. that you do. Penny, thank you for the sacrifice that you make in supporting uh, Tony in the job that he does for our nation, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. God bless you. All right, thank take you. care now. God bless. Ciao. All right. Ciao. As we say in Italian, si vediamo pronto. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.